Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and how the future is very likely female. Today on the show, Trudeau is vying for women's votes like it's still 2015. And is the Conservative Party a dumpster fire, a hot mess, or just boring? Joining me today are two women, Selena Caesar Chavan, author of Can You Hear Me Now and a former liberal backbencher. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back to the backbench. <laughs> we also have Lena Manifi, producer, filmmaker, and co-founder of Ricochet Media. Hey, Lena. Good morning. Lovely to hear your voice again, Vamon, everybody. And our token man of the week, Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief at The Hub, who's back from Alberta. He's safely in his closet in Ottawa. Yeah, just happy to be here to bring up the numbers. <laughs> so it was only a few months ago when Christia Freeland, our first ever female finance minister, released a historic budget that centered around a national childcare program. This has been a long time coming. 50 years, in fact, since it was first recommended to the Canadian government. Liberals have been promising a national childcare plan for six years, even before they were elected in office in 2015. The April budget pledged $27.2 billion over five years for the federal government to share childcare costs with provinces and territories. We all wondered how it would get implemented, with childcare being a largely provincial issue, and we're finally getting a glimpse. In recent weeks, there have been so many announcements from the federal government about childcare. So far, they've made deals with BC, Nova Scotia, Yukon, PEI, Newfoundland and Labrador, and Quebec. All of them come with agreements to reach $10 a day daycare sometime in the next six years, except Quebec, who already offers childcare for $8.50 a day. Their money comes without conditions with the goal of creating spaces and increasing salaries. Selena, I'm going to sound extremely cynical in asking this, but as we head into a probable election, this feels like an effort to pander for the women's vote to me. What do you make of this slew of financial promises for childcare? So I'm going to be fair on this one. Um, this is something that's long overdue. People have talked about it throughout the pandemic. Uh, the industry of daycare and childcare um, had advocated for ensuring that there was something done to save the industry. While in Ontario, I could speak specifically, the costs have been astronomical and they've been asking for this. So election or no election, I think that this is something that has been promised for years and years. People have said they're going to do it. It hasn't happened. It's happening 
I think that they should get it done. The provinces should be on board. Ontario, of course, is dragging its feet. But I have to be fair on this one. I think that this is not a pander. This is actually something that people need, families are going to need, and especially coming out of a pandemic where women in particular have been devastated in terms of their employment and capacity to own businesses, to work. This is needed. So it might be a strategically timed initiative in advance of an election, but it's something that is sorely, woefully needed throughout the country in order to have equity in our work systems. Stuart, you have kids under the age of six, right? How important is a policy like $10 a day childcare to Canadian families? Yeah, so I have a four-year-old who just got out of daycare, and I have a 13-month-old who's just about to go into daycare. So um, one thing you notice as a parent is that large line item in your budget, (laughs) which is like, you notice it even more when it goes away, like once the kid's out of daycare, and you're like, holy moly, I can now spend all this money. But when you say pandering, I think another way to say it is they might just be doing what voters want them to do. And, you know, at The Hub, we have been kind of a venue for some alternative arguments on this. But when we're talking electorally and when you're kind of talking generally to parents, $10 a day daycare can only ever sound so bad, right? You know, I think we sometimes get... um, you know, sometimes a little bit of navel gazing on this, because if you're a voter who kind of abstractly pays attention to the news, Justin Trudeau is making a lot of announcements about childcare. It's going to be cheap childcare. Um, that's the message. I kind of think about my four-year-old who um, she is vaguely aware of about six things about politics. And one of those things is that Doug Ford wanted to close down the playgrounds earlier this year. And if you mention the name Doug Ford, she just starts muttering angrily under her breath about him. Um <laughs> So uh, it's not a good sign. Um, And the other thing I told her is there was the big announcement on childcare. I was writing about it for The Hub and I was kind of explaining to her what I was doing. And I was saying, you know, the prime minister is putting money into daycare. She loves daycare. It's her favorite place to be. She hates being with her parents so much. She'd rather just be in some daycare (laughs) facility. And so she thought Justin Trudeau likes daycare. He must be a good guy. And You know, I think for a lot of people who are voting out there, it doesn't get a lot deeper than that. One thing that's kind of tough for the conservatives here is all those alternatives. You know, they're sort of tough to make that case because, you know, the liberal idea of government doing things is just so easy to sell during a campaign. And the conservatives have kind of a more nuanced argument to make. We know who your daughter is voting for if she had the power to vote. She'll vote for them, but not for you. (laughs) Yeah. Lena, do you think Stuart's right that these promises and the repetition of these promises will sway women to voting liberal? I think the repetition is is always correct. I mean, that's a, a it's a calm strategy. I'm wondering though that they just want to kind of get the report card together. I mean, really, they want to say like, hey, what what have we offered? What were our platforms? Uh, what what do we run on? And uh, what can we kind of tie up before voting time happens? So, I think they're doing their audit, and this is part of the audit. And I think it happens to be timing too. I agree with this, Selena, but everyone is also thinking about their children at home while they work and how much work it's been. And I think the conservatives, um, liberals, uh, NDP, I think this is actually a cross-platform topic. Everybody has had their kids at home during the pandemic and have to struggle doing full-time work and also care. So I think it's a good coincidence. I don't think it's a strategic. Yeah, one thing actually I've written about it before is that um, the campaign between Paul Martin and Stephen Harper where 
Paul Martin was offering this kind of government program for healthcare, and Harper was coming out with a universal child benefit. And it was kind of this ideological debate that happened. Harper won the election. They brought in the child benefit. But that has stayed, and the liberals actually enhanced the child benefit. That debate just isn't there anymore. If the conservatives want to say, hey, we don't think government should be in the business of running childcare, the alternative for them is harder to offer now because the liberals already have this big child benefit that they've introduced in 2015. Is the alternative for them to offer cheaper childcare? But it's interesting that, I mean, all the conservative provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, New Brunswick, they're all like holding off on signing this agreement. And it's like, do your constituents want you to actually not pay attention to their childcare needs right now? Speaking to as many moms and dads and parents that I have during COVID, I think uh, people would take any reprieve that they can get at this point. It's been a year and a half. I want to talk about Alberta. So Alberta Minister of Children's Services, Rebecca Schultz, recently complained to the federal government that the Quebec deal of $6 billion with no strings attached was not afforded to Alberta's parents. She said she had asked for this very package and accused the prime minister of, quote, cynical pre-election maneuvering. Selena, why wouldn't the federal government offer the same deal to Alberta the way they did for other provinces, specifically Quebec? Because Quebec already has something. (laughs) Didn't we already say this? (laughs) Who is not paying attention? I think this is this is why we have to have people in government that pay attention to what's happening in other places. So, and and saying that, we know that there is a lot of struggle happening in Alberta. So, do you even want the same deal? You want a deal that's going to fit the circumstances that your parents are going through. So, you can't just say, well, give me the same deal as no strings attached as as Quebec. You want something that's going to be tailor-made for Albertan families. Quebec has a program in place that is quite affordable, um, has had it for a while. So, it's not, you can't compare apples to apples here. It's apples to like, you know, trees or something. I think what the Alberta government is looking at is polling in the province that shows their residents are more likely to work different hours than, say, nine to five. They're more likely to want different solutions to childcare. So, for example, my neighbor runs a home daycare. What I would really have mixed feelings about is a government-run daycare offering $10 a day daycare, you know, a block away from her and basically undercutting her livelihood. So, like, that, there are nuances here that are worth thinking about. And in Alberta, it's a different world than in Quebec in terms of what the people want out of their daycare, which is, I think, exactly what Selena was saying. So what Alberta is doing is trying to get more wiggle room and what to do with this funding. The feds want them to do what they want them to do. And then on top of all that, there is an election coming up. And just wrote a piece last week um, for The Hub about how Justin Trudeau is very excited to run against Jason Kenney in the federal election. So any way that they can create a little spat, I think that works for Trudeau. I think putting Jason Kenney in the headlines works for Trudeau. Uh, And I think what Alberta is doing here is probably trying to get more flexibility out of this money than is on offer. But like it's a negotiation. So there's going to be a lot of stuff in the headlines. Other women's issues have also come up in the campaign, not a campaign trail, like abortion and gender pay gap legislation. So, for example, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reconfirmed old news that his government has cut money to New Brunswick because of its restrictive abortion policies. New Brunswick doesn't offer abortions outside of their hospitals, which the federal government is criticizing as an issue of accessible, safe abortions. 
Notably, though, the federal government's promised to do this back in 2020, but they ended up paying uh, that money out anyways because of COVID-19. And now this has become an election issue. And I don't understand, Lena, how is abortion still an election issue in 2021? I mean, obviously, it depends by province and, and who you're talking to. I think that we get affected a lot by these conservative waves across North America. It's also in a U.S. issue that's still like, how are we having this conversation at this moment again? I found it interesting that Trudeau said he they're holding back millions of dollars, but then it was confirmed. Oh, actually, it's 140000 that they've been holding back. Uh, so it's not that significant. And... The access, and I can't speak for the the East Coast except for saying that it seems like there's a couple clinics that are not getting access to this money or able to do these services. But it seems as if it's maybe not as big as he's saying as like how much how punitive they're going. I don't think they're going that punitively, and I do think he's always you know putting forward himself as a self acclaimed feminist, and I think that that's really important for him. And of course, there's uh, more women in this country than. Uh, there are men at this time. So To zoom out a little bit and look at the big picture, we know Trudeau's because it's 2015 gender parity moment has become murky in the time that he's been in office. He hasn't really proven himself to be friends to many women. Selena Yu, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and Jane Philpott specifically. There's multiple sexual assault investigations ongoing in the Canadian military right now that the government still refuses to address. What do we think female voters feel about Trudeau today? Selena? So you have the sort of balance between the last conversation we had around childcare and this one. And I think that Trudeau has shown his hand when it comes to I'm a feminist because it's 2015. And you see that that sort of line has been sort of dropped away. I'm a feminist or whatever the feminist thing was. No ad women change politics has sort of been dropped out of the vernacular of the, of the prime minister. Diversity is our strength. That's no longer a hashtag. But it's more than that, though. I think even when we're talking about the pay equity legislation, when we're talking about child care or we're talking about access issues, if you're not looking at it from an intersectional lens, you have a problem. And right now there is a class action lawsuit from black federal workers. Most of them are women who have not received adequate supports, have had harassment and discrimination within the federal system, have worked 20, 30 years and have not received a promotion. And what has the government's response been to that? Crickets. I hate crickets on podcasts, but (laughs) that was the pause for dramatic effect. But you hear crickets on that. And so... Some of these initiatives around abortion and around pay equity and others are important. I think if we're not looking at it from an intersectional approach, understanding that women of color, Black communities, Indigenous communities have a much further gap, then again, he continues to sort of play into what is politically expedient instead of doing what is actually necessary to have those transformative changes. And I feel like I'm saying a lot of things that Jody Wilson-Raybould said, but it's the actual truth on so many different issues. Um, Because he doesn't have the capacity to go deep enough, he gets what he needs at the surface level in terms of votes, but in terms of transformative change, we're not seeing it with this government. And it is really, really disappointing. I actually think that comparatively to other parties, they're kind of showing their their record to be true and they're actually following what they said they were going to do. You know, and, and not in all cases, of course, like fair representation and switching the voting system around. But for this particular thing, he's following with what he said he, w- he was going to do. And it comes also into the pay equity, too. 
So I guess it's a clear-cut choice-ish for female voters in this country? Oh, I mean, it, it's like it really depends on uh, what you're voting on. I would probably say that the environment, we've, we're just looking at an Angus Reid poll um, showing mm. the environment is number one. I think that's higher for female voters. So you can figure that one out. Yeah, these are definitely 2019 issues that are coming to play that they're using and, and deciding that they could run on these promises and they're addressing these things. But yeah, everyone's worries right now and concerns are completely different than 2019. Yeah. And you know, if I could just say, I agree with Lena's last point around the liberals keeping their promises around feminine issues. When I talk about the intersectional lens, for some reason in my head, I keep thinking that diversity is our strength and add women change politics. You put those together and you have intersectional feminism and that's not it. <laughs> no, and, and you're correct there. I'm not saying we're solving all Indigenous women's problems and like obviously they're still going against paying childcare for First Nations children and there's non-equity in so many different areas when it comes to women and children in this country specifically. But what he wrote on was a really mainstream feminist politics, which is a different lens. Not hood feminism. Uh, I have a point of order, Madam Speaker. What's your point of order, Stuart? I just wanted to say what a lovely moment it was for the women's national soccer team to win at the Olympics. I, I was born in Scotland. I moved here when I was five. I've been a soccer nut for years. And the men's team has always been really hard to get behind. And the women's team has always been this sort of light in that darkness. But they just never could bring it across the line. And watching Christine Sinclair all those years, there's a few players that I feel bad for that didn't get to actually be part of this team, like Diana Matheson. But yeah, there's so many of them that I feel so good for. And one point of hope here is that even if Sinclair does retire, there's a good young crew there too, like Janine Becky and Jesse Fleming and Ashley Lawrence. Uh, this is a phenomenal team. And it was so great to see so much of Canada tooting into it. I'm just, I'm like, my heart is like swelling with like joy as you're talking about this again. I'm still riding the <laughs> high of this win. The future is very much female. And hopefully soccer in Canada will be uh, on the upswing here because that's all I've ever wanted out of life. I've got two daughters and I want Canada to care as much about soccer as I do. I'm so excited, but that wasn't a point of order, but I could talk about that for the rest of the episode. <laughs> Point of order, Madam Speaker. What's your point of order, Selena? Um, my point of order is related to a tweet that uh, Jagmeet Singh sent out a couple of days ago related to the Prime Minister um, taking a knee last year at the Black Lives Matter rally and then saying that these hollow gestures are meaningless when lives depend on it. And then he had a couple of ministers and a minister and a parliamentary secretary harp on him that it was baseless. And Madam Speaker, I would like to set the record straight that what Mr. Singh had tweeted is not baseless. Again, when you look at the class action lawsuit that is happening for Black workers within the federal public service, there has been no action if you take a knee at a Black Lives Matter rally and when you stand up, do something like sort out your own house. At the very least, pay attention to the women, 70 percent of them who have worked for 20, 30 years without getting a promotion. Could you imagine doing that? This is our government of Canada. This is an organization that says that they don't want racism and discrimination and yet continue to allow it to happen within their own institution. So 
I would strongly suggest, Madam Speaker, that um, that you rule in my favor on this one, <laughs> that this is absolutely a point of order. There was no need to get onto Jagmeet Singh like this because the prime minister needs to sort out the level of, I don't want to swear, but fuckery. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have consulted with my legislative aides and, uh, you know, they've informed me that that is also not a point of order, but a very valid call out. Thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> Madam Speaker, I have a point of order today I'd like to uh, bring forward. What's your point of order, Lena? Well, I was just uh, wanting to talk about Canada cancelling Twitter, potentially. The anti-internet law that's coming forward is quite strict regulation. <laughs> You're not really allowed to dislike anybody or say anything mean, so I'm just wondering if uh, the government now is really going to cancel Twitter. I mean, oh, I God, think... God, please do it. <laughs> do it! Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how I'd interact with you guys, but I think I'd be okay with that. <laughs> we'll, we'll find a home on Instagram. No, not Instagram. We'll find some other fun place, right? Yeah. That, TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. <laughs> TikTok, that's it. <laughs> Not a point of order, but I'm I'm very interested in this thought experiment. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So I'm really worried about the Conservative Party. Like, genuinely, seriously concerned. <laughs> We need a strong multi-party system for the sake of our democracy. We also need a strong opposition to keep the government in check. Sadly, the Conservatives seem to be struggling to become that. Much of this is because, according to the pundits, Aaron O'Toole is boring. I couldn't tell you what he stands for, what he's done, or what he plans to do. All I know is that he's apparently not down for an election, but is also somehow prepared for an election. <laughs> I also know that he's positioning himself as the anti-Trudeau. Here's a message from his most recent ad released last week. Now is not the time for an election. We can all wait and go to the polls when it's safe. We need to focus on health and well-being, securing our economic future, and fighting COVID-19 together. Lena, what do you make of this message? What goes through your mind when you hear the Conservatives say they are focused on our health and well-being economic future and fighting COVID-19. I just have to say it's one of the weirder things, but I'm not going to put it past Aaron Tool to be strange. Um, he's positioning himself <laughs> as the fighter that Canada needs, but he needs to back down right now. <laughs> he's going to just go to his side of the ring for a bit and needs to cool off and everybody needs to just stay where they're at. So I found it to be strange this entire video. They're not wearing masks, yet they're talking about COVID. They're not even hinting visually towards the pandemic, yet saying that's the reason that they have to sort of pause right now. His Alberta province is not acknowledging a fourth wave for Delta variant whatsoever. And um, he's saying it's the most important 
important thing right now. So obviously they're down in the polls and the top concerns they can address. And so he's literally taking his ball and trying to go back to his corner. Wow. <laughs> who says anything after that? That was like the fighter who doesn't want to fight. That's awesome. Well, okay, so the Hill Times reported that nine of the 11 ads the conservatives uh, put out this weekend criticized Trudeau and his liberal government, and they equated doing so with higher taxes, greater federal debt, and wasteful spending. Stuart, what's the calculation here? What's Aaron O'Toole trying to do and, according to Lena, failing to do? The tough thing here is that um, it's hard to know how much control they actually have of this situation because my sense is that you know in normal times Canadians will look to the alternative when they're done with the incumbent and you kind of saw that in 2015 where Harper had just kind of run his course like I you just got the sense that Canadians are ready for something else my sense is that we are just not there yet with Trudeau polling seems to indicate that it's not like off the charts for the liberals it's especially not off the charts for Trudeau personally but it's not like Harper was in 2015. So then the question is, how does Aaron O'Toole deal with that situation? And secondly, how does he deal with that situation when we have a global pandemic and most people are primarily focused on health news and COVID news? And is my kid's school going to be virtual or are they wearing masks? And, you know, people have been crushing Aaron O'Toole, but I'm not I'm not totally sure that there's some special move he could have done that would have gotten him you know, five more polling points. Uh, That's a very unsatisfying response (laughs) to this because I don't actually have any solutions. But if I can offer one theory on why O'Toole is having some trouble, the Angus Reid Institute poll tracks the issues that people care about. The top three on that poll are the environment, health, and COVID-19. And it was a way of thinking that Stephen Harper had, which was that you had your sword issues and you had your shield issues. And your swords were the ones that you were really good at and you could win voters with. And the shields were the one that you were not associated with. People maybe doubted you on and you kind of had to just hold your ground on those. And Aaron O'Toole is going into an election when all voters care about are shield issues, for him anyways. You can't go into battle with just shields. You know, you talk about deficits, but people are pretty happy that the government did serve. People are pretty happy that the government spent a bunch of money on health care during a pandemic. So, you know, it's tough. And that is just, you know, the nature of the moment we're in. It seems to me that it's a particularly bad moment to be a conservative politician. Mm. Well, you mentioned polling numbers. So, so let me share some of them. So the poll that I read showed that only 27% see Aaron O'Toole favorably compared to Justin Trudeau, who's at 38%, and Jagmeet Singh is at 48%. Stuart, you bring up an interesting point that the normal playbook might not apply in an unprecedented once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. And, and maybe those are the pressures we're seeing right now on the unofficial campaign, campaign trail. But Selena, do you think that's the only reason why Aaron O'Toole is struggling to connect with Canadians or, or is there more to it? You know, I was on uh, Garnet Genesis podcast a little while ago. He asked, you know, what's the issue with the conservatives? And I said, you know, it's a communications like all, everything that you put out is so poorly done. You know, you may have great ideas. I don't know, because it's so bad. You know, we don't even bother listening. And even within Durham region, where I think Aaron O'Toole should be, you know, doing well, trying to take at least some of the 905 back from the Liberals, it's just, it's just not translating. It's not 
there's something that's really lost in translation with his messaging and with him overall. It's almost as if he's handing just by his lack of presence or communication strategy or effectiveness that he's handing JT another majority. There's a void even within the conservative party that I think people are trying to fill. Like I've been seeing Pierre Polyev uh, being more ruthless with his communications. You know, we saw him on his A game during the we questioning and uh, he's been putting out a lot of content, dare I say, even leadership-esque style content. If you look at the other countries that responded to COVID, they managed to deliver better results. Uh, they managed to deliver a better uh, COVID outcomes and lower unemployment with significantly smaller deficits. So what he's building us towards, and this government is building us towards, is a debt crisis. Stuart, is this a sign of just how fractured the Conservative Party is right now? I don't know, because the Conservative Party is filled with bedwetters who will tell you this before every election, that everything is falling apart and our party can't get his stuff together. They are a party of people who are suspicious of government. And then the leader has to govern that. That is a tough thing to do. You know, I was listening to Derek Sloan's ideas for a new party, and I didn't actually hear any ideas. At the end of the day, Canadians want someone who's willing to tell the truth. And we're going to be telling it the way it is so that Canadians can make the best choice and get these other parties out of there. We don't need them. We need a party that isn't left or right, but just true north. We're not going to be based on any ideology or anything like that. We're going to be true north, common sense principles that work and principles that are true to Canadian families. And, you know, there was Max Bernier, who people genuinely thought he might win at least one seat, but it totally fizzled. The only phenomenon that I'm really keeping an eye on right now and maybe Sloan will be exploiting this, which is this kind of populist, kind of libertarian objection to COVID measures. You know, I was in Alberta doing a little bit of reporting for that, and that is a movement there. Like, that was a significant issue for Jason Kenney in his caucus, that a lot of his rural MLAs were just not on board with what the government was doing. That exists, I think, at a critical mass in Alberta. It exists in pockets elsewhere. I don't think that it is fodder for a new party, though. You know, I look through the Conservative Party platform as it exists at this point in time when the election hasn't been called. And and McLean's has a really useful guide that, you know, anyone can go to and, and look through. And it's really clearly laid out. The Conservatives have a lot of climate policies. Like, I think that's one of their more hefty sections. They've got carbon pricing. They've got electric vehicle manufacturing. They've got a disaster resilience plan. They've got nothing for jobs and skills, nothing for food security and hunger. Um, they've got a bunch of pandemic policies. They've got a few Indigenous affairs issues. But there's no small business plan articulated, which I was surprised to see. And the only economically focused thing they said is they want to balance the budget in the next decade. Lena... What would a smart conservative party platform look like in 2021? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I'm just wondering if there ever was. Um, but <laughs> I think that the issues are just swaying more rapidly to progressive topics and things that they're not skilled at, they're not good at, they cannot articulate, and that their party is not agreeing on. So I don't think there's everybody in the conservative party that kind of agrees on the top five concerns that Stuart was talking about. There are some things in there like deficit and housing costs, but they're lower concerns. I think housing is in a super crisis right now. I think that that would probably be the best thing that they could do based on people's concerns is sort of leaning into economy 
kind of coming back and and dealing with the housing costs and inflation. I wonder if the Conservatives are struggling to define themselves ideologically at this point in time, because there seems to be more universal agreements about what society needs, especially after a pandemic. So, you know, Selena, same question to you. If the Conservative Party is contending with providing all the same things that the Liberal Party is also providing, how do they distinguish themselves on the campaign trail? Well, I was going to answer Lena's question as a smart conservative platform would be a liberal one. Yeah. <laughs> Steal a little bit from the Greens too, right? Because if you want to focus, because they're they're eating themselves, they're eating their children over in the Green Party. So you might as well like take that economic argument and say like we want to focus on greening the economy in some way and investing in something that you know does whatever. But they're not doing that. And if they are, if their platform is not platform is so great, who's hearing about it? And who's hearing about it without all of the little trip ups and flat footedness that the conservatives are putting out? Again, a great point around the video. Nobody in that video around COVID is such an important issue, like let's not do an election, is wearing a mask. There's just so much disparity between your own messaging. And this is the problem with the True North coming up and Derek Sloan as well. I mean, I I was looking at um, some surveys saying that maybe 7% of people in in Canada or in the West um, are not into vaccines. And they kind of want this COVID thing to be over and they're kind of conspiracy about it. But you have people who are fractioning off just to lean into those people and they're they're the most radical. So I don't know what they're going to do to try to pull themselves together because the loudest people are, are... pushing for topics that nobody else cares about as a majority. So There is definitely the possibility that a lot of this polling is noise. Of and the splinter party stuff is people protest polling. So one thing to keep an eye on is how many of these people come home on election day. And that's when we will know if there's truly an issue in the Conservative Party. Well, I don't think maybe we, we may not have to wait because, I mean, the other piece that I talked to Garnet about was why isn't the Conservatives like leveraging some of their own superstars, like you mentioned, Pierre, sending out some really good stuff. I don't know if there's like that locked arms conservative party that there used to be where there is that the messaging that we're all rowing the boat in the same direction. I think that we're seeing that maybe some are are not rowing and some are in a different direction and some are just like watching at this point. Got to take tips from the eight women rowing team in the Olympics, man. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I don't I don't know the name of it, but there is a guy or a woman on the boat who yells at them. Yeah, what they're supposed we need to a do. woman to um, yell at them. <laughs> <laughs> that job back in the day was Stephen Harper. He got all the conservatives rowing together, and but it didn't work until he won. You yeah. kind of have to win, you know, at least a minority before people start to trust you and... You know, Aaron O'Toole has not earned that yet. So despite it being summer, there is a lot happening in Canadian politics right now. So before we adjourn, I wanted to do a quick rapid fire questions and hear your hot takes in 17 words or less. Lena, there's a new IPCC report out in the world as we're recording right now that says the planet is the hottest it's ever been in 120,000 years and that we have to unequivocally get rid of fossil fuels to mitigate catastrophe. Will Canada listen and stop buying pipelines? No, but I really want to take this opportunity to say too hot. 
very too hot. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a uh, it's it's a really big deal. I'm in BC right now. There's like five huge forest fires. It's like equivalent of like half a million hectares. Uh, things are on fire. To be serious, there's evacuation warnings. Towns have gone up entirely in BC. I don't know if the East is just not getting this memo. <laughs> things are really, really, really um, bad for the climate change. And uh, I don't think they're going to change it unless the fire's in their neighborhood. Selena, three more liberal MPs just announced they're not seeking re-election. Why are people jumping the political ship? I, You know, I, I'm actually unsure, especially with Adam Vaughn's announcement, because I thought that he was going to stay. So that one is making me really pause and try to figure out what's going on. I don't think that there's any jeopardy of the Liberals winning again in the upcoming election. However, I do think that we should be paying close attention to maybe some things that are rumbling underneath that we don't know about. I don't know. I'm I'm at a pause for this one. I will reiterate again, though, that a lot of individuals, Catherine McKenna, Kate Young, were elected in 2015. And the speculation around having an election called very soon before those individuals get their six years and before they get their pensions, I'd be really, really hard-pressed to believe that that would happen, that an election would be called before any of those individuals get their six years and get their pension when it's so close. Do you want to hear my Machiavellian theory on that? If Trudeau wants to win an election and he wants highly motivated people running to regain their seats, you would do the election right before their pensions are due. And then you have people running basically to make sure they get that. <laughs> That's an evil mastermind plan. <laughs> <laughs> That's politics. I'm going to be thinking about that one for the rest of the day. And my final rapid fire question to Stuart Thompson. Fully vaxxed Americans can now cross the border into Canada despite concerns over a growing Delta variant. Did we act too soon? Um, you know, I think my general feeling on this, um, I defer to expert opinion on the borders because it is a very, like, it's a complicated situation. But I, I think overwhelmingly my sense is that we need to start embracing the miracle of the two-dose vaccines that a lot of us have received. I am concerned about Delta. When you start hearing about things like the amount of viral load is like a thousand times more um, and the transmissibility is an R naught up in the six or seven range, like it is disturbing, but it seems to just be a transmissibility thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means that the vaccines are still doing their job. We're obviously going to have more breakthrough cases, but uh, I think that we should start accepting this miracle that, you know, in about a year, a year and a half, we have like four fifths of our population has a first dose. It's unbelievable. So um, I have no concerns. You know, personally, I have no concerns about Americans coming over here if they're double vaxxed. And I don't have any concerns about the border opening. That was way longer than two sentences. I'm I think sorry. I think we all we all <laughs> went past the 17 word count. <laughs> My concern is the fact that the World Health Organization is now considering using horoscope signs to name future iterations of the variant. So we're going to have like an Aries variant and it's, it just it makes no <laughs> Sagittarius? sense. Sagittarius and Scorpios. 
On that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. We'll be back in two weeks. By that time, there might be an election, you guys. We'll keep you posted. You can write us at the backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If you like what you hear, please follow us. Please subscribe. Please rate us. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed if Twitter isn't canceled by the time we come back. <laughs> um, Lena, where can people find you? At Lena Menifee. Selena, where are you at? At I am Selena CC on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And Stuart, where are you? Check out check out the hub.ca. We're gonna have a, a new thing coming for the election, so it's gonna be really exciting. Okay. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you so much for listening and please take care of each other. Bye.